This week's podcast is brought to you unofficially by the Weather Network, Mother Nature, with an assist on another unpredictable NHL week. Central Division Hockey, the podcast this week, a wrap of last week's games for Monday and ending Sunday with analysis and a look ahead to the week ahead for the eight teams that will make up the Central Division in 2021-22. I'm your host, Tim Bigelow. Recorded Monday, February 22nd, this recaps the games last Monday through Sunday night. The condensed schedule, however, it has often been posted on the Tuesday each week, not Monday. This week, it will be Tuesday when I begin editing it, and hopefully it gets up Tuesday. It might even be later than that. The lead, whether you liked it or not, the actual weather affected this week's NHL schedule the most negatively. However, hockey is just a game. The severe stormy weather in Texas, in a state that is not prepared for encountering it, meant non-COVID postponement for the Dallas Stars. It's the second time this year for them. The league did the right thing, a little too late to the puck drop on Monday, but they still canceled that night's games while the state battled with basic power and being able to survive. Hockey can wait over states of emergencies to be sure. The Stars' four-game homestand schedule was wiped out and off the board and just glad to see the relief efforts to aid those in needs in the state of Texas were prioritized. If there is one thing the NHL has learned from last year is their schedule doesn't need to be set in stone. Games can be made up and the first wave of COVID forced them to stop play entirely. They also paused in the bubble in respect of social injustice. By the time Mother Nature decided to this week, well, the NHL would have no excuse to not make adjustments because they now realize this season will be full of them. We have no games to cover for Dallas as they were slated to play a pair with Nashville early in the week and a pair with Tampa Bay later this past week. In a purely hockey analysis now, and this is a hockey podcast, Dallas remains one of a handful of teams having played the fewest games. That isn't in their control. However, the condensed schedule will make making up those games a disadvantage to them because it will mean a lot of games in a lot less available days to be able to play them. One thing I thought that was a positive was goalie Ben Bishop and forward Tyler Sagan get closer day by day to a possible return. You could consider that a positive, as well as some other players such as Alexander Radulov, who are on IR at this latest pause. They could end up getting into some of these postponed games depending on the rescheduling. Truthfully, don't think of that as some great advantage though to the postponements. The risk of further injuries gets heightened when the schedule make updates don't give players the recovery time needed between games and that is a serious reality Dallas may encounter trying to get their games in. That's the positive and the negative that essentially becomes a split 
honestly, the necessary delays have been seen as a disadvantage for the most part. It also is an exclusive to Dallas this season. They seem to have been hit from the teams we cover so far this year the hardest. The other game delayed by Mother Nature wasn't because of bad weather, but because it was too nice out. The Colorado-Vegas game at Lake Tahoe began on time, and the teams managed to get through the first period. However, the sunshine made the ice surface unplayable as professional players and officials could be seen following due to the poor ice conditions. After the first, the NHL delayed the game that started just after 2 p.m. Central Time to 11 p.m. Central Time. We'll have the game summary later. However, the first intermission, if you will, lasted over eight hours turned out to be the right decision the visual beauty of the location on full display in the first was absolutely majestic the game being played on the ice unfortunately wasn't by all accounts again the stoppage was the right decision the nighttime conclusion didn't capture nearly any of the scenic awe of the location that without fans was still amazing from a non-hockey fan perspective that first period would have drawn a lot of viewers a regular season nhl game wouldn't have from a hockey fan perspective and the importance of the game to first place in the West Division this season, well, the hockey at night outside really did remind me of playing outdoor hockey more and of actually playing hockey. And the second part of the game was absolutely quality NHL hockey and still outdoors and unique. I want to say the focus was again about the game and not the location and that flooded me with memories of playing hockey on outdoor rinks growing up. I'm not generally a fan of the spectacle NHL stadium games. However, I do get the additional exposure it provides the NHL game. Chalk it up to a necessary evil. This, with the delay, did both a period where the location stole the show and two periods where an outdoor hockey game was the center of attention because of the game being played on the ice. Now that I fit in watching two other NHL games in between the start and finish of the Colorado-Vegas game, well, it all worked out in the end. The Colorado-Vegas matchup was the one to be watching Saturday, whether it was the first game, the last game, or in this rare case, both. And that's almost factually true if we don't include the East Division afternoon games that I don't cover in this podcast. Every week, Central Division Hockey, the podcast this week, breaks down the teams into three divisions they play in this year, one year before we get the band all together again next season. We start with the Honda West Division as they have four teams we cover. The Discover Central with three teams we follow, and we always finish with the lone team playing this year in the Scotia North Division. Seeing as this one-off realignment put the normal Central Division teams we cover into three divisions, at least using the sponsor name provides a distinction for this one-off season best. The Discover Central is not the namesake this program will properly and accurately be named for beginning next year. We'll take a look at the action from the teams this week right after this. Football is back, and BetMGM is inviting new customers to join the huddle and enjoy the action like never before. Sign up today using bonus code CHAMPION, and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. You'll also have instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, player props, and boosted odds specials. Just download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. The 
BetMGM app is the perfect way to experience the excitement of wagering on live sports. Now in more markets than ever. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. Welcome back to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bigelow. We start with the Hondo West Division. This week, we begin with Colorado, who won both versus Vegas this week and are second in the West based on point percentage. And we always use the point percentage here at the podcast. Vegas remains first in point percentage in the West Division at 700. Colorado, 679. Again, second in point percentage. This week, they went 2-0-0, overall 9-4-1, 14 games played, 19 points, 44 goals for, 29 goals against for a plus 15 goal differential. We begin with the game summaries. Tuesday was a 3-2 win versus Vegas. 156 in Colorado defenseman Dennis Gilbert and Vegas's forward Keegan Colestar fight. 230 in Colorado's Pierre-Luc Belmar's chances deflected away by Vegas's defender sick to prevent a sure goal into an open cage. Colorado's Nathan McKinnon opens the scoring at 708, finishing a three-on-two with a one-timer from the top slot over Vegas goalie Marc-Andre Fleury's blocker on the far side. one nothing Colorado through one. Minutes into the second, Colorado's Nazem Kadri keeps on a two-on-one and can't convert. 4.15 in, Vegas hits the post. With 3.24 left, Vegas gets a power play goal from the dot, beating Colorado goalie Philip Grubauer, high glove, short side. At 2.21 remaining in the second, Brandon Saad drives to the net with the puck and gets a backhand goal five hole. Under a minute left, Grubauer makes a big save in the slot on Vegas' defenseman Alex Petriangelo. At 6.52 of the third, a Vegas wraparound attempt has a loose puck in the Colorado paint. Vegas goal with a backhander lifted over a sprawled over Grubauer in that goal mouth scramble. 8.26 left. Flurry comes out to poke check a puck away from Colorado's Jason Magna and prevent a possible breakaway. Seven and a half left. McKinnon gets stopped by Flurry from the slot with his glove. And at 4.49, McKinnon puts it off the post short side. Colorado's Nazem Kadri, after a faceoff win, gets the puck to the Colorado D and goes to the net where he collects the rebound in the paint after a point shot and tip to lift it over Flurry. Short side for the game-winning goal with 41 seconds left for a 3-2 Colorado win. Vegas outshot Colorado 29-25. Colorado over 3. Vegas 1 for 2 on the power play. Grubauer made 27 saves, allowed two goals against for the win. Saturday, 3-2 win versus Vegas at Lake Tahoe. This was an Avs home game. 2.58 in, Colorado opens the scoring on a clean zone entry that leads to a point shot from Colorado defenseman Sam Girard that beats Vegas goalie Flurry 5-hole. Colorado gets a late four-minute power play after a double minor to Vegas for high sticking with just under four to go in the first. Vegas takes a too-many-men penalty in the back half of that four-minute minor with a minute 20 to go. Colorado fails to score. Miko Rantanen has the best chance, but he is robbed by Flurry. After the eight-hour intermission sun delay, 
The game resumes to start the second. Colorado captain Gabriel Landeskog is elbowed no call in the second. 7.37, Vegas goal on a rebound with traffic. Net front, Colorado goalie Grubauer has no chance to see. Teams play four on four as Vegas takes a retaliatory penalty on a pending power play call. McKinnon creates outdoor magic after Vegas play is broken up in the Colorado defensive zone. McKinnon takes the puck out of his own zone and weaves his way to the offensive zone, uses Vegas defenseman Petrangelo as a screen on Vegas goalie Flurry, and McKinnon puts it top corner far side for a highlight real beauty. Just under five left, Colorado's Landeskog rings the crossbar from the slot. With 3.45 remaining, Colorado looks to add an insurance goal. Colorado forward Jonas Donskoy instead gets called for goalie interference when it's Flurry, who is out of the paint on the play. Simply a shit call by Wes McCauley, who, as a side note, always has to steal attention away from the game unto himself. The best officials, in my opinion, are always the ones you don't remember while the players playing the game is what you do remember. Soon after, Vegas gets called for goalie interference to make up for the bad call that cost Colorado an actual goal. The second's wonderful officiating continues as Colorado's Brandon Saad takes a high stick that goes uncalled while Colorado's Andre Burakovsky is called for a high stick in the same play just after. This after seeing last week's high sticks were one of the most consistent calls by the NHL refs. Colorado in the third takes back-to-back penalties and gets a big penalty kill. That leads to a goal off a face-off win blast through traffic high glove by Colorado defenseman Devin Taves at 13-11 and a 3-1 Colorado lead. Vegas responds a minute 14 seconds later as Vegas's Alex Tuck takes advantage of Grubauer losing his stick from interference, again no call, to take it along the goal line from the corner to a Savardian spinorama and his shot goes off a Colorado defenseman's stick top shelf. That's as close as Vegas would get. 3-2 Colorado win. Start to finish game took 10 hours and 37 minutes. Colorado outshot Vegas 39-29. Both teams 0-4 for 4 in the power play, thus negating the poor officiating in the second period, especially in affecting the outcome, thankfully. Grubauer, two goals against, 27 saves in the win. Colorado's analysis this week. If you didn't get the hint of my let's wait till Vegas has to actually play a healthy Colorado team analysis last week, that was exactly the point. However, the 3-2 win still included more D-men, not normally regular everyday lineup regulars who were playing, and the forward group was also still missing key guys, but Colorado found a way to win. By the way, Vegas defenseman Shea Theodore did play in the Vegas losses this week. I have been repeatedly reminded how his absence affects Vegas from playing their best, so I'm not sure what excuse you give when he is in the lineup and Vegas loses. But I will say the absence of Kale McCarr, Sam Gerrard, and Eric Johnson is far worse than one Shea Theodore again. And Colorado won both games this week. The game summary from Tahoe was expanded to not have to talk about it in the analysis and repeat myself. Kale McCarr and Sam Gerrard, who scored the game's first goal, did return. Johnson, however, did not. He's still on IR. On forward, Captain Gabriel Landeskog and depth forwards Matt Calvert and Tyson Jost returned in Tahoe, and that allowed for as complete a Colorado roster as one can hope for with the way the season has gone. 
The shots indicate how much Colorado carried the play in Lake Tahoe win. They were the better team. The goaltending was equally good. A healthy Colorado D group and a reminder, Eric Johnson is still an IR, is still better than Vegas at full health. And in all honesty, with no disrespect intended for Vegas defenseman Alex Petriangelo, who, if you have listened to this podcast from the start of it, You know, I felt Petriangelo should have had a Norris Trophy nomination last year. And yes, Shea Theodore is elite, but I'm not trading Kale McCarr for him. And I think McCarr's absence is equally a challenge to Colorado as Theodore would be for Vegas without missing Gerard and Johnson too. When at near health, I do think Colorado is a better team than Vegas. Unfortunately, as last year's playoffs for Colorado proved, They may not have everyone healthy enough to get a cup win. For me, this week reminded me it won't be if Colorado does win a cup or the division or finish first this year ahead of Vegas in the regular season. At some point, this team will do all those things. 8-3-2, 1.64, goals against average, 0.936, save percentage, two shutouts, and outdueling a Stanley Cup winning goalie with comparable exceptional numbers this year. If you don't feel Philip Grubauer is the real deal, you must also be a fan of Eastern Canadian hockey team that will go unnamed on this podcast now as well. You know when, for example, play-by-play or color commentators add to a word another one that doesn't require it? Well, that's the type of play Grubauer is giving the Avs in net this year. For example, it's stellar that one would say, above stellar to describe it and although i think that is just overdoing descriptors for a player so far this year if it's grubauer's performance i won't dislike that being done another quick reminder kale mccard leads the colorado d group in average time on ice per game at over 24 minutes this is his second full season he is the cornerstone this defense is being built around and yes there are a ton of great defensemen on this defense group but we should not talk about McCarr less for the impact he has on Colorado's success his physical play his puck moving skills and his edge work with skating with the pucks is next level he every game makes someone look silly while repositioning himself in the offensive zone for a shot it was just nice to see a fuller complement of forwards and the captain back as well And who cares about Hart trophies? To be blunt, Nathan McKinnon has a few consmite trophies that are more valuable in his future. Notably, Miko Rantanen has seven goals now. Brandon Sod is six as far as the offensive contribution that Colorado is getting. Team metrics, Colorado's goal differential is best in the West division. Fourth best league-wide heading into Sunday's action. An off night for all the West division teams. Colorado is first in the league in fewest goals allowed with 2.07 and has a 89.6% success rate on the penalty kill. First ranked while ranked 12th in goals scored 3.14 and the power play has a 23.3 success rate ranked 12th as well. Simply put, a healthy Colorado team is the best team in the West Division. A Colorado team with injuries this week showed it isn't an easy team to beat either. The useless Colorado factoid. The time between Colorado's opening goal in Lake Cothole and Vegas's tying goal in the second was exactly nine hours apart. That's an NHL record that will be near impossible to beat. 
Thumbs up, Colorado defenseman Ryan Graves had to step up in Colorado's Tuesday win when a lot of D-regulars still hadn't returned. He did picking up an assist and playing 24 minutes, 48 seconds. Second only to Devon Taves, who we expect those type of minutes from. Graves was impactful in 20-plus, even in McCarr and Gerrard's return Saturday. His play in both games deserves recognition. Thumbs down that forward Logan O'Connor can't play when the forward group is at full health. Any chance of a 13-forward 5-D lineup? Not with the D group the Avs have. And that is a joke. I am not serious on that lineup idea at all for any team, to be clear. In additional news, Colorado defenseman Eric Johnson and backup goalie Pavel Francoz remain on IR. I don't recall when the Avs were this healthy all season or last. Good time to have to play four games this upcoming week. It's nice to almost see the team GM Joe Saka constructed. So up next for Monday versus Vegas, Wednesday versus Minnesota, Friday at Arizona, and Saturday at Arizona. The big concern actually isn't Colorado being up for Monday's game for Vegas. It's appreciating Minnesota as a playoff team in the West Division on Wednesday and not having a letdown in preparation for that game. I would refer you to Arizona playing Colorado in the playoffs last year and that Colorado, not Arizona, is a more improved team this season. As far as what I think will happen in the back-to-backs, so long as Colorado doesn't take the Yotes as lightly as I admittedly am when thinking of that matchup between Arizona and Colorado. We move on to Minnesota with a 571 point percentage. They are fourth by point percentage in the West Division. This past week, they went 2-1-0. Overall, 8-6-0. 14 games played, 16 points. 38 goals for, 36 goals against for a plus-two goal differential. Minnesota returned to play this week going 2-1-0 in the three games they played. Here's a look at the summaries. Tuesday was a 4-0 loss at LA. In the first at 3:28, LA got a power play goal on a sweet slot pass backdoor in short side on Minnesota goalie Capo Kakinen at 8:27 left. LA point shot hit the post. It was 1-0 LA after one. Second, a minute and a half in, Minnesota's Krill Kaprizov wraparound attempt was thwarted. At approximately four minutes in, Minnesota's Joel Erickson Eck has a great chance from the hash marks on the power play stop by LA goalie Jonathan Quick. LA goal off transition is wired home from the slot after a clean zone entry at 12.03. Kaprizov drives with the puck to the net and draws an LA penalty and forces LA goalie Quick to make a big save with 2.31 left. It's still 2-0 LA through 2. 5-15 into the third. Minnesota's Kevin Fiala can't get a wraparound attempt to go. 5-57 left. Minnesota's Matt Zuccarello is robbed net side. 3-04 left. LA keeps it in the offensive zone. And Anze Kopitar from along the goal line from the corner feeds it into the front slot to beat Kakinen. LA adds an empty net goal. Shots. 29-28 LA. LA 1-3. for Minnesota 0-3 for on the power play. LA's quick 28 save shutout. Minnesota's Kakinen, three goals against 25 saves in the loss. Thursday, a 3 1 win at Anaheim. In the first, early Minnesota, Erickson Eck has a partial break, but he can't finish it. 
Minnesota's Ryan Hartman steals and roofs the opening goal. Far side glove on Anaheim goalie John Gibson at 727. 38 seconds later, Minnesota's Kevin Fiella adds to the lead net front to poke home a Minnesota goal. Minnesota's Marcus Foligno with time, shorthanded, puts it over the glass for a 5-on-3 Anaheim power play. Anaheim gets one shot a goal in the back half of that power play with 3.35 left in the first. With 25 seconds left in the first, Anaheim gets its first even strength shot on goal. If you're wondering how lopsided this game was to start. 2-0 Minnesota after 1. 12 minutes into the second, an Anaheim goal created with pressure down low. Backhand spin in the slot roof glove. 2-1 Minnesota through 2. 7.54 left in the third. A wide open net for Anaheim is put wide and covered by Kakinen. Wild looked better passing on a delayed penalty call than on the actual power play with six and a half left. Kakinen stops a shorthanded blast by Anaheim later. 3.45 left. Marcus Foligno finishes a tic-tac-toe net front just as a power play ends. Minnesota wins 3-1. 27-17 shots Minnesota. 0 for 5, Minnesota 0 for 2, Anaheim on the power play. Minnesota's Kakinen, one goal against, 16 saves for the win. Saturday, a 5-1 win at Anaheim. 15.07 of the first, two-on-one, Kirill Kaprizov stops up, feeds Zuccarello. He roofs it glove side for a Minnesota goal on Anaheim goalie John Gibson. Anaheim can't keep the puck in the Minnesota zone at the blue line. Minnesota's Fiala races up ice, beats an Anaheim defenseman to the puck, and puts a forehand short side off Gibson, and the puck rolls in for a Minnesota goal at 16-17. Two-nothing Minnesota after one. Three minutes in, a Minnesota power play goal. Fiala finds the puck in the net front scramble after a Minnesota shot, and he puts the rebound in backside into an open cage. 12.40 left, Minnesota's Jordan Greenway is denied by Anaheim's goalie Gibson. 16.29, Anaheim gets a goal. Point shot through traffic that is tipped short side. 3-1 Minnesota through two. 5.45 of the third, Minnesota goal as Kaprizov has a given goal with Victor Rask. And from the dot, he puts it on the ice five hole. As a Minnesota penalty ends at 14.26 mark, Minnesota gets a goal on a three-way passing play. Fiala drop pass to Hartman with a cross slot pass finished by Joel Erickson X, who gets the goal from the slot low blocker side. Three and a half left, Anaheim with two chances. They don't score, and they put the rebound over the net. 5-1 Minnesota win. 29-27 shots Minnesota. 1-2 for two Minnesota. 0-3 for three Anaheim power play. Minnesota's Kakinen picks up the win. One goal against. 26 saves. The analysis for Minnesota this week. Does anyone remember the in the power ranking podcast right before the start of the season after training camp? Go back and listen to how we spoke about the key to early success for Minnesota would be the returning D group while the forward group found its way with all the new additions. So as far as the 4 nothing loss in Minnesota's return after the postponed games to COVID, well, it's an outlier. In fact, pretty much forget it and move on. There is nothing to be learned from that game other than if more than half of minnesota's regular defense group can't play well it's going to affect the whole team it would most teams but especially minnesota only two regulars of the d group were available to dress and play ryan Suter and matt dumba meanwhile top prospect kaylin addison played his first nhl game matt bartowski and lewis belpedio who are more described as ahl caliber defense played their first of the season 
as did offseason signing Dakota Mermis. I think it was about a thousand NHL game play difference between the four inserted in for Captain Jared Spurgeon, Jonas Brodeen, Ian Cole, and Carson Soucy. Heck, even the regular seventh guy, Brad Hunt, wasn't available. The team had to play from behind, spent more time in the defensive zone, and it didn't have the kind of transition game, the bedrock that I basically base my Minnesota will be a playoff team in the West Division on foundation for that first game back. That would have affected the ability to generate offense as well. By the next game, the 3-1 win, Spurgeon and Cole had returned, and that provided at least a top-four NHL-caliber defense group while Mermis and Addison played again. The other players solely coming back into the lineup meant the Minnesota Wild could compete, and the results were wins. The 5-1 win, Brodeen returned, and only Addison, not Mermis, played. The closest to the actual D-group Minnesota plays regularly and Minnesota ended up with the best result of the three games. Just remember the ability not to play in your own end, and the defense in Minnesota helps create the transition that generates offense. It may not be as flashy as maybe Vegas, St. Louis, Dallas, or Colorado do it, but the Minnesota defense do do it. Coach Dean Evison did a couple of things with the forward group. Again, it was earlier in the draft free agency preview that I said, regardless of who was in the lineup, rookie Kirill Kaprizov would look good with Matt Zuccarello on the other wing. Delayed by injury, this week you got a glimpse of that. No one had points in the first game back. The next two, Matt Zuccarello, his second game, one goal, two assists for three points. Kaprizov to assist in the last game, and I absolutely didn't imagine Victor Rask being the one playing between them, but Rask in his first game back between them also potted his fourth goal of the season. Next, Everson has Ryan Hartman at center, rewarding him for his hard work. A goal and two points versus Anaheim for him. Meanwhile, Erickson Eck with Greenway on the wing are also driving a line, playing top six minutes while being a headache for the opposition to contain. Now, the power play has been, well, that's a broken record on its struggles, but I don't care what Minnesota Twitter thought of Everson just playing a regular five-on-five line in the last Anaheim game on the power play. Honestly, it definitely simplifies it, and it produced a power play goal. I can't remember what former NHL coach told a story of his team struggling on the power play a number of years ago that he was so frustrated at the power play units, he put out five defensemen for a power play instead of the power play unit as a wake-up call. Honestly, rewarding a line for good play when the power play is struggling is a good way to shake it up. The 5D? Well, that's kind of extreme. Finally, starter Cam Talbot wasn't available for this week, so it was Kapil Kakinen, who prior to the injury announcement of Alex Stayok, just prior to the season start, would have been slotted as the third goalie on Minnesota's depth chart, who has now started the most games for Minnesota this season in net with nine to Talbot six. Make no mistake, Talbot has been stellar, but while Kakinen hasn't been brilliant, he has been good enough to give Minnesota the chance to win most nights. Just look at the goals against average and save percentage for both thus far. 2.40 goals against average for Talbot, 
a 2.46 goals against average for Kakinen, a 0.920 save percentage for Talbot, a 0.911 save percentage for Kakinen. Yes, Talbot's a starter, but Minnesota is getting better goaltending by both Talbot and Kakinen than the duel of departed Debnik and the injured Stalick provided a season ago for Minnesota. That's a good thing, and it's leading to wins. One loss with the depleted lineup followed by two solid wins was a good week for Minnesota returning to play. The team metrics 2.57 goals allowed to seven and again a stat supporting the goalies and defensive group strength. The PK is third at an 86.5 kill rate that overall in the league not within the division. 2.71 goals scored is 21st, and that is in the bottom half, but the chemistry and lines take time with such a turnover, and this team has done its work scoring by committee as they were going to have to do this year. The power play is at 7.7% and is 29th now. Really, it has only an upward trajectory. It can't get worse. Minnesota's useless factoid. While using regular lines for only one game on the power play, Minnesota went one for two. So Coach Dean Evason has a 50% success rate on the power play when just putting out regular lines. We also shouldn't have to point out the small sample size that can lead itself to misleading stats, but it's factually true. Thumbs up the return of Matt Zuccarello. Pointless in his first game back and the entire team was. He is a point-per-game player with three points in his next two. The early chemistry with rookie Krill Kaprizov is going to generate more offense for Minnesota going forward. Thumbs down, none. Minnesota playing through missing so many regulars and going 2-1-0. It's wrong to call it the guys who had to step up above their roles and competed the best they could. That was one tough first game back. From there, Minnesota returned quickly to the team they were prior to their forced postponed pause. Additional news, Minnesota continues its road trip with the NHL adding makeup road games Monday at San Jose and Wednesday at Colorado before returning home. It still is a manageable week. It is also expected starting goalie Cam Talbot will get back into game action this week. Good timing, especially with back-to-backs versus LA at home over the weekend. Defenseman Carson Soucy is still on IR, not injury-related, and forward Marcus Johansson is listed as day-to-day of the Minnesota players who have played games this season. Up next, again, four games, Monday at San Jose, Wednesday at Colorado, Friday, Saturday at home versus LA. A better than 500 week is what we expect for Minnesota. They need to get goal production on San Jose, who give up a lot of goals. Colorado will be a battle, but it will be nice to see both teams play each other at near full health. The first game between the teams was super competitive with both teams missing guys. LA has looked better of late, but they still are really a 500 team and Minnesota needs to grab points against them and Arizona especially to secure a playoff spot. I believe they can against both those teams. Monday afternoon, St. Louis and Arizona wrapped up playing a league record seventh in a row versus each other in regular season play. Arizona Twitter account Monday tweeted prior to that seventh game, Hey, St. Louis Blues, we know yesterday, Sunday, February 14th, was Valentine's Day, so this might be bad timing, but we were thinking that after today we should see other teams, and it's not us. 
it's you and those ugly red uniforms taking a shot at the blues reverse retro jerseys which by the way i like a lot more than the purple coyote jerseys i didn't mind the thread banter on the that tweets thread after this summary the podcast is ready to move on until the eighth and final meeting later on in the schedule as well between st louis and arizona monday arizona one nothing win versus st louis minute into the first st louis ivan barbashev has a partial break and goes backhand and is stopped by arizona goalie darcy kemper in a scoreless first 30 seconds in to the second st louis oscar sunquist drives with the puck to the net and can't score on kemper 521 a broken play in st louis defensive zone clayton keller from the circle has a wrister that st louis goalie jordan binnington's catching glove gets a piece of while he tries to make the save but benner's glove doesn't have all of it to stop it from going into the net it's the opening goal it would also be the game winning goal and the lone goal of the game with 224 remaining arizona's connor garland beats bennington five hole but the puck goes off the far post and out it's one nothing arizona after two the best chance of the third belonged to st louis's ryan o'reilly two defenseman vince dunn on a st louis two-on-one with 916 to go but that got stopped by kemper as he picks up his first shutout of the year making 24 saves for the win bennington in net for st louis gets the loss allowing one goal against with 18 saves st louis 24 to 19 shot advantage arizona 0 for 4 st louis 0 for 2 on the power play Arizona, with the win, improved to 4-2-1 versus St. Louis on the season series, while St. Louis fell to 3-3-1. We start with Arizona, as they also had a better record than St. Louis this week, in addition to the head-to-head win. Arizona, right now, has a 500-point percentage, and that's sixth in the West Division. This week, 1-1-1 overall, 7-7-3. 17 games played, 17 points. 44 goals for, 49 goals against, a minus 6 goal differential. Here's the summaries for the Arizona set versus L.A. Thursday, a 3-2 shootout loss versus L.A. In the first, Arizona turnover springs L.A. net front for an L.A. goal as a king outweights Arizona's goalie Darcy Kemper and lifts it over him all alone at 421. Shot by L.A. lays on the Arizona goal line behind Kemper. As he covers up the puck with his leg, he puts it into his own net. The goals are reviewed and counts at 11.50. 2-0 L.A. after one. One minute in, Arizona's Connor Garland in the high slot beats L.A. goalie Jonathan Quick through a screen with the puck deflected off an L.A. defender for an Arizona goal in the second. As an Arizona power play can includes arizona phil kessel's second effort nets a goal at 551 on a rebound after arizona's tyler Pitlick's shot was stopped with 854 remaining arizona goalie darcy kemper makes a big pad stop on a two-on-one net front timp that then goes off the post and out it's tied at two after two 1251 left in the third la with the best scoring chance but kemper denies that with a pad save on a redirected tip shot off of the rush arizona with a minute and a half left in the third had pressure but couldn't score in overtime kessel was stopped on a given goal with christian dvorak halfway through overtime arizona nick schmaltz drives to the net with the puck but he can't finish so the game needs a shootout arizona's first shooter schmaltz scores la's second shooter kopitar scores 
Both teams' third shooter score, Dvorak for Arizona, Kempe for L.A. L.A.'s fourth shooter, Gabrielle Velarde, scores. Arizona's Clayton Keller is stopped. 3-2 overtime win for L.A. L.A. outshot Arizona 29-22. Both teams 0-3 on the power play. Arizona's goalie, Kemper, two goals against 27 saves for the OT loss. Arizona still picks up the loser point. 4-2 loss versus L.A. at home Saturday. Around three minutes in, Arizona's John Hayden denying point blank by L.A. goalie quick in the slot. 1.35 left in the period. Arizona's Kessel keeps on a two-on-one that quick stops on the rush. Scoreless through one. Early in the second, Arizona's Pitlick keeps on a two-on-one and rings it off the post short side. 4.37, L.A. scores the opening goal on a clean zone entry on the power play. A wrister high glove from the dot beats Arizona goalie Kemper. 11.48, Arizona's second power play unit gets a goal. Derek Broussard's one-timer through traffic is tipped by an LAD man. LA, with Arizona on a late power play, take a cross-check penalty with less than 10 seconds left. It's 1-1 after 2. 52 seconds into the third, shorthanded LA finishes off a 3-on-2 with a backdoor net front goal that is lifted over Kemper. Arizona challenges for goaltender interference. It's deemed a good goal after review. So Arizona gets an additional penalty for delay of game for the challenge. While shorthanded, Arizona takes a too many men penalty and gets a big 5-on-3 kill. 941, Arizona gets the equalizer with a power play goal. Kessel with a wrister far side from the dot. 12.52 LA scores with a drop pass on his own entry where the trailing LA player has all sorts of time to put it home in the slot with a far side wrister that goes over Kemper's pad under his blocker. 12.3 seconds left, LA scores an empty net goal on a shot from their own zone. 4-2 win for LA. Arizona 24-23 shot advantage. 2 for 4 Arizona, 1 for 3 LA on the power play. LA scores a shorthanded goal as well. Arizona's Kemper, 3 goals against, 19 saves in the loss. This week's analysis for Arizona. Arizona had a break-even week, and it is a descriptor of this season. I actually repeated the first thing I said last week again this week. If you want to pretend that Arizona is doing better than they are, use the total points instead of the point percentage. That puts Arizona fifth in the West. The only person you are fooling is yourself if you're doing that. Points percentage, they are sixth, and seventh place San Jose has the same point percentage with one fewer game played. Or how about this perspective, Vegas, Colorado, and St. Louis have 600 point percentage or higher right now. Minnesota and LA are 571 and 531 point percentage respectively. The Coyotes are what we thought they were in the power ranking post-training camp preview podcast. A team that will be sitting just outside of the playoff cutoff, whether you base it on actual points or the better point percentage, they are a 500 hockey team. And that record includes picking up an extra two points over St. Louis head-to-head in the first seven games played. They aren't dominating the Cali teams, so it's creating a cluster effect that they are all treading near 500 below the playoff cutoff line. 
And not to jump the gun on analyzing St. Louis, but the rest of St. Louis's week is an absolute early sign that they aren't in the cup contending team category this year like in the past. And therefore, Arizona ought to put less weight on coming out a little ahead in that head-to-head series so far with one game left in that set of eight. Kemper did steal a game this week his first this year, and in absolute fairness, in the West Division, with the exception of San Jose, the goaltending has been phenomenal. Kemper's 2.28 goals against average and .912 save percentage with a shutout, however, still has him with a 5-7-2 record. This team needs to generate more offense. Let's preface that, however, and talk about the short leash line. Connor Garland has seven goals. Nick Schmaltz has six goals, Clayton Keller has five goals, and Christian Dvorak, seven goals. Additionally, as well, Phil Kessel has six goals, and he had an 11-game goalless drought we talked about last week he was able to get out of. That accounts for 31 goals from five guys. As a team, Arizona has scored 44. So for those five guys, that's 70.5% of the total goal production from those five guys. The secondary scoring on this team isn't there at all. That's going to keep them out of the playoffs. Now, Jacob Chicken has three to lead the Blue Liners. Oliver ekman Larson, who missed 10 games, hasn't scored in the seven he has played. Jordan Osterley, with one goal, is the only other D-man that has. The D-group contribution can make up for a lack of bottom six goal production from the forwards, but you don't have that with this team. Remember, the difficulty of the schedule narrative that was going around Arizona. Well, this 1-1-1 week included playing L.A. twice. Did Arizona dominate or just simply fall short picking up a single point in two against a team they need to be way better than 500 against to make the playoffs? Yet this more accurately shows there shouldn't be any bump in expectations based on how the games with LA went. Arizona didn't play bad, but this team isn't going to dominate any teams in the West Division either. They're simply not a playoff team. The team metrics... 24th in goals scored, 2.53 goals per game. 15th in goals allowed, 2.76 goals allowed per game. Again, better in goals allowed, but giving up more than they generate. The power play is 15th, 20.6% success rate, while the penalty kill is 8 at 84.5%. But let's see that mark. That's 8 for all in the NHL, by the way. Uh, let's see that mark maintained after playing Colorado, who has an elite-level power play. Arizona's useless factoid. I'm not one for the shootout to decide games. It's a skills competition. Better left for the All-Star game, not deciding extra points in the regular season. However, going into LA's 3-2 shootout win, Arizona goalie Darcy Kemper had a .642 career save percentage in shootouts. Remember his save percentage is well over 900 right now. The drop-off is unimaginable. I would definitely say Arizona has a better chance of not getting to this spot in the game to try and get the extra point based on Kemper's shootout performance. Once they're there, it's going to be harder to get that extra point. Thumbs up to Phil Kessel getting back on the goal-scoring streak with back-to-back goals versus LA. The first one helped get Arizona into extra time for the point in the shootout loss his contribution especially given it's only four other players scoring on this team 
is really vital to Arizona's success. Thumbs down. Of the off-season signings made by GM Bill Armstrong, John Hayden has been the most disappointing so far. When he has been inserted in the lineup, he's only played eight games. His 10 minutes, fourth line minutes, aren't impactful, and he has no points. I mean, it worked to get Kessel to get back to scoring, so here's a bottom six guy that could add some offensive production that hasn't. Maybe it'll work this week for Hayden. In additional news, the only notable IR news is that backup Antiranta is out, upper body. The team did see the return of forward Drake Kajula and defenseman Nick Yalmerson, who are valuable to this lineup. Up next for Arizona, four, Monday versus Anaheim and Wednesday, and Friday and Saturday versus Colorado. Arizona homestand continues and quite honestly dropping two to LA isn't good enough, especially at home. They need to score three plus goals. That should get wins over Anaheim. If they want to be a playoff team, they need to win both those games. I think they split them. And as for Colorado on the weekend, that won't be pretty for Arizona. You think St. Louis is a cup contender? Well, Colorado actually is one. And the weekend set might finally put some reality on how far away Arizona is from being in that category. I have Arizona going one for three, although they do generally go 500. Maybe they win both that they should versus Anaheim and go two and two. That's the best case scenario for Arizona this week. Finishing off the West with St. Louis, their 6-11 point percentage still has them third. This week, though, they went one and two overall. Overall, that puts them 10-6 and two, 18 games played, 22 points, 59 goals for 15. 56 goals against for a plus three goal differential. After Arizona's Darcy Kemper shut out St. Louis early in the week, St. Louis battled to a split with San Jose later in the week at home. Let's look at those summaries. Thursday, a 3-2 overtime win versus San Jose. 6-12 into the first, St. Louis opens the scoring. Puck worked out to the net front for Mike Hoffman's power play goal short side up top. Later, a pair of great pad saves by St. Louis goalie Jordan Bennington, 1-0 St. Louis after one. In the second, St. Louis's Kyle Clifford has a wraparound attempt denied by San Jose goalie Martin Jones. 8-27, San Jose gets a goal created by offensive zone pressure, and a net front rebound gets put up top. 6-33 left St. Louis's Ivan Barbashev is robbed by the glove of San Jose goalie Jones. San Jose face-off win nets a San Jose goal net front, tuck five-hole on St. Louis's goalie Bennington at 1431. 2-1 San Jose through two. Minute into the third, St. Louis's Jordan Cairo rings the iron. With nine minutes left, St. Louis generates tons of offensive zone pressure but can't score. Six on five, a late rebound off goalie Jones, blocker, gets to Braden Shen at the top of the paint. He pots it to tie the game at two with 40 seconds left in regulation in overtime san jose's goalie jones flashes a leather on st louis defenseman justin falk on a st louis three on two right off the start of it st louis gets a power play st louis's hoffman puts it off the post st louis defenseman tory krug finds david perron net side for a one-timer on the ice that goes in five hole for the power play game winning goal in a 3-2 St. Louis overtime win. St. Louis 45 for 32 shot advantage. 2 for 4 St. Louis 
0 for 1 San Jose on the power play. St. Louis goalie Bennington, two goals against 30 saves for the win. Saturday, a 5-4 loss versus San Jose at home. Defensive zone giveaway by St. Louis leads to a San Jose goal in the slot five hole on St. Louis goalie Bennington at 724 of the first. Bennington plays the puck past his own D-man, 10-10 in. San Jose recovers with numbers for a tip in on the doorstep, 2-0 San Jose after one. Under three minutes into the second, Bennington solid on a San Jose wraparound attempt. 348, San Jose wins a puck battle in the corner and gets a net front goal from the slot. 57 seconds later, St. Louis responds off the cycle. Braden Shen parked top of the paint, gets a tap-in goal. At 6.18, St. Louis has a turnover that leads to a backdoor forehand goal for San Jose. 19 seconds later, St. Louis' Zach Sanford tips a St. Louis point shot in. At 15.30 on, a delayed penalty to San Jose, Ryan O'Reilly gets a goal from the lower circle short side. 3.29 left, Shen hits iron far side on a rush with 119 remaining st louis's kairu keeps on a two-on-one for a glove side a roof goal tied at four through two the teams play four on four midway through the third back at five aside san jose offensive zone pressure with a shot that finds its way off a traffic in front for san jose the game-winning goal at 11:51. San Jose takes a delay of game penalty with 4:36 left and get a big penalty kill to hold on for the 5-4 win. Shots were 29-26 for St. Louis. St. Louis 0 for 3. San Jose with no penalties. Bennington five goals against, 22 saves for the loss. This week's St. Louis analysis. I said last week, given the schedule, Monday was a must-win for St. Louis, and St. Louis lost. I also added, let's see St. Louis show us they are a cup-contending team, still, by taking the games versus San Jose, too. It wasn't asking much. You can't tell me what the goaltending San Jose is getting, or better, the lack of it, that they are a playoff team this year. First, Game 7, one nothing loss to Arizona. The team sported identical records after six games, with the loss St. Louis at best, with a win in the final meeting this season between the two teams will get a split in the eight-game series with Arizona. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm trying not to swear. It's not acceptable for St. Louis to be even or lose that eight-game set with Arizona. For all the times I still have to hear people talk of the three-way race for top spot in the West Division being between Vegas, Colorado, and St. Louis, it's St. Louis that has shown they don't belong in that conversation this year at all. This week more than solidifies that for me. The amount of extra games in hand on Colorado and Vegas should have St. Louis many points up on the other two while they play catch-up games. But St. Louis isn't that ahead in points. And the point percentage accurately has St. Louis third. All of a sudden, the stakes versus Minnesota were just raised for the battle for third. And Arizona walks away this year at worst, even or better than in that series. Now, I don't think St. Louis will miss the playoffs. They sure aren't playing like a playoff-bound team. All three games, St. Louis was down against the opposition, and only in one game of the three did they come back to win. The set against San Jose, the Thursday comeback, is what good teams do when they get down in games. But good teams don't get down in every game either. 
the second St. Louis let San Jose into the game and trailed going into the third. Saturday, they made all sorts of defensive zone mistakes that ended up in the back of the net and were down by three, not once, but twice in the game. Bennington ends up having a rare off night as well, and St. Louis gets no points in a regulation loss. San Jose picked up three points out of four on the road, while St. Louis picked up two points. It's San Jose. Those should have been wins on lock, but not with this year's St. Louis team. Whether it's currently defenseman Colton Pareko out or prior defenseman Marco Scandella, the D group depth can't afford one of them out of the lineup without a drop-off in what is regarded as one of the league's best D groups. When one of those two are out, the bottom pair depth isn't as good, and it's costing St. Louis games as clearly both when Tory Krug and Justin Falk are on the ice. That's not when they're getting scored against, but when they're not on the ice, they are getting scored against. Offensively, this team is getting scoring. Jordan Cairo, David Perron, Mike Hoffman, Ryan O'Reilly on that list, while Braden Shen leads the team with nine goals. But they are allowing as many against. That's reflected in the goal differential of plus three. The differential was way better for St. Louis last regular season. Team metric, St. Louis is down four spots from 7th to 11th overall in goals scored, 3.22, tied 19th in goals allowed at three per game. That absolutely is where the team needs to improve. The special teams, still near the league basement, the power play remains 26th, 14th percent success rate. The PK is tied for 24th at a 74.2 kill success rate. To me, it isn't whether St. Louis can get goals or that Bennington can't shoulder the bulk of the workload in this shortened season. The only question is this defense and the teams buy into the defensive side of the game that hasn't existed. And by all accounts, it's probably the lack of competition, not the great play of St. Louis that has them still comfortably third in the West Division. St. Louis fans should get used to it and hope Minnesota doesn't come out decidedly in the head-to-head matchup or the comfortable third spot St. Louis has is at risk. I won't have any conversation on St. Louis being higher than third till we see some team defense commitments from the whole team, not just the defense, we're talking the forwards and the defense, against competition, the St. Louis lineup should be winning against Knightley. The seven come-from-behind wins this season for St. Louis is an impressive stat, yet it is a true indicator of the poor attention to detail to be behind in a bunch of games to have to come back, and this week winning one of three that you're down in isn't a recipe for a sustained win streak, and St. Louis really could use one right now. St. Louis is useless factoid. When Jordan Cairo scored for St. Louis, they were a perfect 5-0 and this season. That streak ended on Saturday when Cairo scored, but St. Louis lost 5-4 to to San Jose. Thumbs up this week. David Perron scored the OT winner in St. Louis's 3-2 overtime win. He also assisted on both St. Louis goals for a three-point night. Thumbs down. The lack of commitment to details in the defensive zone, not just from the defense, but the forwards as well. 
In additional news, forward Vladimir Tarasenko is yet to play but getting closer to his return. The injury list is full of regulars. Forward Tyler Bozak, upper body. Jaden Swartz, lower body. Forward Ivan Barbashev, ankle. And that's going to be a while. In addition to forward Robert Thomas with the sum, are on IR, along with defenseman Colton Perenko with his back. Up next, three games for St. Louis, Monday versus L.A., Wednesday versus L.A., Saturday at San Jose. I would hope St. Louis would at least go 2-1 and one this week. They should go 3-0, and oh, but they won't with the inconsistency they have played with most this year at. It's a good week to get back on track. I'm not sure they will based on the play of this past week. We'll take another break and be back to look at the teams in the Discover Central and Scotia North Division. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com holiday. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome back to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. This week, I'm your host, Tim Bigelow. Let's look at the teams in the Discover Central. We start again this week with Chicago. In fairness, Dallas didn't play, and Nashville, well, we'll get to that. Chicago, 5.79 point percentage, has them fifth. This week, 2-1-0. Overall, 9-6-4, 19 games played, 22 points, 55 goals for, 56 goals against for a minus one goal differential. Looking at the summaries of the games this week, Tuesday, a 3-2 overtime win at Detroit. Chicago goalie Malcolm Subin makes a great pad save stop minutes into the first. Chicago off the cycle with a sweet back pass in the slot from Carl Soderberg sets up a Matthias Janmark goal to open the scoring on Chicago's first shot on goal at 419. Off a neutral zone turnover, Dominique Kubalik gets inside position to tip a pass for a Chicago goal on Detroit goalie Thomas Grice with just under four minutes left in the first. Detroit gets a goal with 15 seconds left as a bouncing puck in the slot is put away on a big rebound. Not a goal you fault Subban on. 2-1 Chicago after one. 
scoreless in the second. Chicago has the best chance as Kubalik is robbed in the paint and the puck caroms off the post after the initial save. In the third, a Detroit defender is allowed to skate in from the point with the puck and fire home a goal roof blocker side off Detroit's forecheck to tie it at 549. Subban makes several quality saves after that. The game is tied at two and needs overtime. With 131 to go in overtime, Detroit three on one, and the result is no shot on goal. 52 seconds left. Pius Suter rings the post on a rush. Detroit gets a two on one. Chicago takes it the other way. And with 17 seconds left in the five minute overtime, Kubalik scores the overtime game a winning goal five hole from the dot 3-2 Chicago win Detroit out shoot Chicago 29-24 Chicago is 0 for 3 Detroit 0 for 2 on the power play Chicago goalie Subban two goals against 27 saves for the win in overtime Thursday, a 2-0 win at Detroit. A scoreless first is highlighted by Chicago defenseman Nicholas Bodine ringing the post during 4-on-4 play. 13 minutes in, Chicago's Patrick Kane is stopped on a pair of good scoring chances. Later, Chicago's Alex DeBrinkett's one-timer from the slot is saved by Detroit goalie Jonathan Bernier. Chicago goalie Kevin Lankin good handling a late-period pressure from Detroit. 17 and a half left in the second. Chicago's Lankinen has a big save on a Detroit tip on a power play. 13.25 left. Chicago is a ding for too many men while on a power play. At 12.03, Chicago gets a power play goal. A highlight reel goal from Philip Kuroshev, who skates up ice and through two Detroit defenders, then goes forehand and slips the puck five hole for a beauty. One nothing Chicago after two. With approximately six minutes left in the third, Pius Suter is stopped net front. With under five to go, Detroit gets a goalie, Lankinen, out of position in his net, but failed to tuck the puck in for their best chance to tie the game. And a Chicago defender blocks the puck from going into an empty net on Detroit's second attempt in the same sequence. With 58 seconds left, Chicago's DeBrinkett nets the insurance empty net goal. 2-0 Chicago win. Lankinen's first career shutout, making 29 saves. Detroit outshot Chicago 29-26. Chicago won for three Detroit 0 for 3 on the power play. Friday, a 5-3 loss at Carolina. Just as Chicago has a power play expires at 15-22, Carolina opens the scoring with a far side post and in goal from the top of the circle beating Chicago goalie Kevin Lankinen. 1-0 Carolina after 1. 4-3 mark of the second off a faceoff when Carolina wins a board battle and creates a give and go in the slot for a goal. Chicago has two power play chances after without a goal. With under five minutes left, Lankinen has two great saves on a Carolina power play, plus is saved by a post. Right after the kill, Chicago's Patrick Kane goes the other way, enters the zone, and does a Savardian spinorama and puts a perfect backhand goal past Carolina goalie James Reimer between his blocker arm far side at 16-39. With a delayed penalty to Carolina, Chicago defenseman Ian Mitchell joins the Russian scorers from the high slot five hole. Two all after two. 228 of the third Carolina shot goes off the crossbar and Chicago's defenseman Calvin DeHaan while trying to get it out of the crease ends up putting it into Chicago's net for a Carolina power play goal. 456 left Carolina gets an insurance power play goal net side with a pretty between the legs pass in the slot to score. 
328 left. Chicago's Philip Kurashev is denied net front. With 314 to go, Carolina gets an empty net goal. Chicago gets a late power play goal with 51 seconds left in the contest. A keen wrist shot from the point hits a Carolina defender and is tipped by Carl Soderberg for the goal. 5-3 Carolina final. Carolina outshot Chicago 38-29. Chicago 1-4. for four. Carolina 2-4 for four on the power play. Chicago goalie Lankin in four goals against 33 saves for the loss. Saturday, the teams were to meet again in Carolina, but the game was postponed by the NHL as a scheduling adjustment. Both Carolina and Tampa Bay played each other Saturday and said, both those teams have games to make up in the schedule, while Chicago has the most game played after Detroit currently in the Discover Central Division. This week's Chicago Analysis. To say this week went as expected for Chicago other than the NHL schedule adjustment would be accurate. Chicago won the games against Detroit. Then given how Chicago has performed early this season, that would be expected. Then lost to a really good Carolina team in a competitive contest that you could also say was expected. We won't know how with the postponement Chicago could have won on Saturday or not and gone three and one but the two and one week for this team is spot on they aren't playing like the basement dwelling detroit and nashville teams at all but they are in tough with the elite teams in their division still they are playing competitively versus those top tier teams less unexpectedly as at the season start and they didn't drop games against detroit and we expect them to win those games now based on the season start Oddly, the complaint in Chicago over the last few years is being exactly what they are this year, a team slightly below the cup contender category, but in the playoff mix. The difference is we were told this team would be rebuilding, and I think everyone lowered their expectation level. Heck, I downright will admit I put no expectations on them. So they are a feel-good story for being what they were a year ago, essentially. However, under playoff bubble expectations, expectations such as last year you could actually be more critical yet the injuries to key guys and playing more rookies and unproven nhl goaltending we didn't expect them in the playoff bubble mix but a step back of it the positive take then comes from them overachieving to what has been the status quo now accurately using the point percentage chicago is in fifth spot They are ahead of both Columbus and Nashville while they have forced Dallas to play good in the games in hand Dallas has for Dallas to catch them in point. And that is in Dallas control, not Chicago's. They are positionally competing for a playoff spot this year Chicago is. However, the bad news is it really is one playoff spot that they are competing for. Carolina, Florida, and Tampa Bay are all above a 700-point percentage. No other division than the Discover can say that about the division's top three teams right now. While we have raised expectations of Chicago being a playoff bubble team, they will be in tough with Dallas and Columbus to grab that fourth and final spot. That we have them in the conversation is a pleasant surprise and made watching the Discover Central more enjoyable and less predictable than it would have been otherwise as anticipated. 
We spoke last week not just about goalie Kevin Lincoln and success being a big factor in them being competitive, but also the defense and forward rookies that have performed above anyone's reasonable expectations. It's a three-level contribution that has Chicago in that playoff mix. Consider that a team could have one or two standout rookies. I almost thought a rookie team award should be created for Chicago this year. Chicago has Kevin Lincoln in a net. Add how good defensemen Ian Mitchell and Nicholas Bodine have been, and forward standouts Pew Suter and countryman Philip Kurashev have been. Like, that is an off-the-charts to have such a big contribution from so many rookies. It practically makes up a complete line with a goalie included. That is absolutely unheard of for one team to have as well. And you know I hate the individual awards, but why isn't there any buzz around Patrick Kane and the Hart Trophy? There absolutely should be. It's like around the league, his talent is just expected rather than appreciated. His leadership, and leadership by example, is off the charts, and he makes everyone around him, his line mates, better. The duo of him and Alex DeBrinken upon his return this season has been absolute magic. However, the guy driving the team is Patrick Kane, and we should be talking about him every week for his impact. 26 points, 8 goals, 18 assists, and 19 games played. Alex Dabrinkit is at over a point-per-game production as well and leads the team in goals. Guess what? With most of those apples courtesy of Kane. Also lost is goalie Malcolm Subban has looked good in the starts in between Lankinen's and any playoff team is usually going to need their backup to pick up some wins. Subban is providing that. Chicago at 32.2 success percent on the power play has them fifth in the league the team's goal scored at 2.89 per game is ranked 18th and the goals allowed at 2.84 is 16th they flip two spots rankings in those categories the goals allowed improved compared to the goal scored rank falling it basically evened out the pk rank 15th overall has an 80 percent success rate Chicago's useless factoid. We talked at length about it last week for almost all the teams trying it at some point this season. But coach Jeremy Colton used the 11 forward 70 lineup in two of the three games Chicago played this week going one for one. Thumbs up. We asked for some even strength goals from Dominique Kubelik, who had all his goals up to this week on the power play. He scored two, including the OT winner in Chicago's 3-2 overtime win. Thumbs down, Chicago defenseman Calvin DeHaan is rarely on the ice for a goal against, but he helped Carolina score early in the third while trying to prevent the puck from going in. It stands out this week as the goal against the most cost Chicago in the 5-3 loss, their only loss this week. We don't expect Calvin DeHaan to be in the thumbs down very often if at all. In additional news, forward regular Dylan Strom is day-to-day with a concussion and defenseman Lucas Carlson is out with a groin. They're both on IR. That is, of course, not including the players that have been out since the beginning of the year that we're not going to rattle through week by week. Up next for Chicago, they've got four games this week, Tuesday and Thursday at Columbus, Saturday and Sunday, a back-to-back with Detroit. Columbus is at a 526 point percentage and coming off a loss on saturday to nashville 
and that won't be very inviting when they have Chicago come in this week. However, Chicago does have the higher point percentage, and winning those games over Columbus would give them more separation while battling Dallas for fourth. Likewise, Detroit isn't an easy out, but Chicago needs to continue to win against the Wings. Chicago should go, I think, 3-1 and one this week. That's putting raised expectations on them now. Nashville has a 4-12 point percentage, 7th by point percentage in the Discover Central. This week, 1-1, one and one, overall 7-10, seven 17 games played, 14 points. 40 goals for, 57 goals against, a minus 17 goal differential. The Monday and Tuesday games versus Dallas were postponed. Thursday, as we go through the summaries, a 3-0 loss at Columbus. Evenly played first with a late period buzzkill. 16.8 seconds left. The puck goes off Nashville's defenseman's Matt Benning skate, then goes up in the air and over goalie UC Soros and in for a Columbus Blue Jacket goal. Not sure anyone knew where that puck was until it was in the net. one nothing Jackets after one. 4.56 of the second off a faceoff win. The puck goes to the point, to the sidewall, and a slap shot blast beats Nashville goalie Soros through traffic, including a linesman. The play is reviewed to see if the puck goes off the linesman, and the goal stands. Under 10 minutes left in the second, Columbus rings the post, and then have a stretch pass breakaway whistled down offside at 723 that looked onside. So lucky break for Nashville. It was 2-0 Columbus through 2. 16-43 Nashville's Roman Yossi splits the Columbus D for Nashville's best scoring chance of the game. With 231 left, Columbus adds an empty net goal in a low event game. Nashville 32-22 shot advantage, although not a lot of high danger chances. Nashville was 0 for 1 on the game's only power play opportunity. Columbus goalie Elvis Merzlikens makes 32 saves for the shutout. Nashville goalie UC Saros, two goals against 19 saves in the loss, and you can't really fault him for the two that were scored on him. Saturday, 4-2 win at Columbus. 120 in Nashville goalie Pecorene corrals a puck off a post for a big save. 11-15 left. Nashville's Victor Arvison has a good wraparound attempt on Columbus goalie Merzlikens. 12:58 a Nashville power play goal opens the scoring. Kelly Yarncook from the slot high glove side on a rebound. 12-6 Nashville shot advantage at this point in the first. 16-49 Colton Sisson takes a pass net front in the paint for a tap-in goal. Nashville 2-0 after one with a 16-6 shot advantage. 3:46 of the second Columbus gets a shorthanded goal backdoor tap on a three-on-two. 528 Columbus keeps the puck in the Nashville zone and makes a cross crease pass to create another tapping goal. Nashville's Matt Deshane rings it off the post right after, short side. Off a face-off draw at 653, Nashville's Mark Borowicki and Columbus's Nick Felino fight. Eight and a half left, Merzlikens robs Nashville's Michael Granlin on a power play. Eli Tovalin gets a breakaway but doesn't get a shot off on a backhand with approximately five left in the frame. 2-2 tie through two. 16 seconds into the third, Yarncroft goes barred down blocker side from the high slot after a face-off win 
for Nashville goal, his second of the game. 29 seconds later, Nashville's Philip Forsberg off a draw just outside Columbus Blue Line cuts in and scores low far side. With 17.20 left, while making a save, Columbus goalie Merz Lakins is hurt as he falls awkwardly on his own shoulder. He leaves the game and did not return. Columbus goalie Jonas Corpusello enters in relief. With 15.01 left, a Columbus cross-crease pass off Nashville defenseman Dante Fabro forces Nashville goalie Pecorini to make a spin and save with his pads to keep the puck out of the net. With seconds left, Yarn Croak gets a breakaway but hits the crossbar trying to complete his hat trick. Still a 4-2 Nashville win. Nashville 45-23 shot advantage in the game. Nashville 1 for 4, Columbus 0 for 1 on the power play. Nashville's Rene, two goals against, 21 saves for the win. This week's Nashville analysis. Let's start with a quote from Nashville team president and CEO Sean Henry, as was said to the Athletics' Adam Vinian. And I quote, whether you're the owner of the team, if you're David Poyle, if you're me, if you're a player, it feels the same way. Everyone's angry and confused. We all believed that this roster would produce more, end quote. That was at the team's 6-10 and 10 mark prior to going 1-1 and 1 this week with the two games versus Dallas postponed. The president and CEO dismissed any notion of firing GM Poyle, the team's GM since inception in 1998. I have been critical of GM Poyle's offseason moves going back a while, and definitely if you listen back to the free agency preview and recap podcast for Nashville, you can hear my thoughts. I am someone who prior to the beginning of the season said that GM Poyle is who needs to be replaced. So I want to remind you I'm not late to the party. And I'm also on record in the Power Ranking podcast before the season started that Nashville would be occupying the basement of the Discover Central with Detroit this season. I will say I may have been wrong that Chicago would be there with those two teams as well. And I fully admit that. However, I am one of the few people, if one of the only people, that closely follow Nashville that saw this coming. I'm disappointed by the vote of confidence, but I expect this season's trajectory for Nashville, it is inevitable that GM Poyle isn't the GM when Nashville begins play next season. As sports cliches go, the saying the team got a character win is probably how the local Nashville media spins the 4-2 win versus Columbus. Just don't feed me that. That is for this Nashville team an anomaly. That game is the rare outlier. A complete shutout game by Columbus. They came in confident, overconfident to play a Nashville team that had reached full press desperation mode. This upcoming week will show that we will return to a regular Nashville Predators form in a week that they have to dominate to save their season. Look at this week's games. Nothing is a buzzkill to a team than last-minute goals in periods. In the 3-0 loss, they gave up one in the first period. The other big buzzkill is special teams. In the 4-2 win, they gave up a 3-on-2 that led to a short-handed goal. That can't happen ever. A short-handed goal happens on an individual effort, rarely, and they suck. Look at Arizona's shorthanded goal in the play-in playoff round that 
cost Nashville a game for examples of how those shorthanded goals can haunt you. But it's not just the shorthanded goal. It's the fact the team short a player with only four skaters on the ice had a three on two in the first place. That can't ever happen. And if those kinds of things are more the norm for a team, well, those are clear signs they are not a good team. Given the split in the last two with the team just above them in point percentage in Columbus and two more with them after two with Detroit, who has a worse point percentage than Nashville, the only Discover Central team that does, these six games for a really good cup contender would be a lock for stockpiling point. What part does Nashville not realize they aren't a cup contender? By the way, at 38, Pekka Rene has played above expected. His 2.65 goals against average and his .908 save percentage are respectable. But he is past the days of stealing games that is required with the roster playing in front of him. And I said that before the season started. Saros has struggled, but last year proved he wasn't going to cut it as a clear number one. And his 3.47 goals against average, .882 save percentage, aren't good for a backup or even the league average. And this week, courtesy of Sportsnet insider Elliot Friedman's 31 thoughts from the week we were talking about last week. The league's average save percentage this year is 0.906, the worst since it was 0.905% in the 2006-07 season. When I said Rene was respectable, there's the data I'm basing my opinion on. Nashville needs to get above average goaltending to win more games this year. And while GM Poyle gave both Saros and Rene a vote of confidence, my best advice prior to the start of the season was to look for an upgrade and as well draft Russian goalie Yaroslav Askarov if he fell to their pick in the draft. I have always thought highly of the Nashville draft department. And I often say that. So they got that part right. However, he has two years in Russia before he can play an NHL game. Nashville doesn't have a plan to get them to when Askarov is the starting goalie in Nashville. And developing goalies takes longer than any other position. So that's Poyle's first fail. The second is an actual top four. We don't call it a top three in the National Hockey League on the defense. And that is what Nashville has when Roman, Yossi, Ryan Ellis, and Matthias Ekholm play. I call them the tripod for that reason. Those three guys are elite. You rarely hear me say anything negative about those guys because there rarely is anything negative to say about those guys. But the drop-off after those three guys on the Nashville defense is enormous. Again, Poyle at last year's deadline traded away for a guy. That guy didn't work out, and he didn't re-sign him in the offseason. So, he picks up Borowicki from the bottom-dwelling Ottawa Senators and, worse, Matt Benning, who couldn't be a regular in a downright non-existent D-group in Edmonton last year. He was often a healthy scratch, Benning was, on one of the worst defensive groups in the entire league. That's not a bottom pair to shelter your top three, and again, not top four, 
that's bringing on more liability or at least an equal amount to last season. And I saw that coming. Also, Dante Fabro has not emerged as a top four defenseman yet. There is growth, but he needs to be sheltered. Again, I said this before this year started, and Nashville is unable to do that. That costs Nashville games. And when you consider you could ice a better top four of former Nashville drafted defensemen than the four Nashville has for their top four retained, well, again, I look at the GM. Would you take Nashville's current top four, Yossi Ellis, Ekholm, and Fabro, over Shea Weber, Ryan Suter, Seth Jones, and Samuel Girard as your top four? Believe me, Yossi Ellis and Ekholm are elite, and I have all the time in the world to tell you the respect I have for those guys. But that other Nashville drafted group of 4D stack up rather well, especially because Fabro hasn't quite arrived as a legit top four guy. Everyone else I named, all seven of them, absolutely is a top four defenseman in the National Hockey League, and currently is. Not when they were in their prime, but as they are now based on their most recent game played as a comparison. Nashville has three elite D-men, and actually the reigning Norris Trophy winner among them. Nashville has three elite defensemen, and then they have that drop-off, and they're is one way to balance it, and that is with above-average goaltending to gain more wins. It's one of the ways. But not average nor below-average goaltending will do that. It just will expose the weaknesses more. Losing one of the tripod, such as Ekholm right now, also shows vulnerabilities. No disrespect to Jarrett Tenorti as a bottom-pair NHL defenseman. I would have him play instead of Benning, in fact. And I said that prior to the season starts. But him trying to step in and play top four is a tough ask. The need to get more offense, and that's all anyone focused in Nashville on this offseason. Not the need for a goalie upgrade, nor that the defense wasn't actually improved. Gone, and I hate to say, were character guys like Craig Smith and Austin Watson, who although limited in his offensive production, had that kind of game opposition teams and fans hate to have to play against. The two guys keyed on by everyone were Matt DeShane and Kyle Turris. Turris, of course, got bought out and is playing in Edmonton now. But imagine if Kevin Fiala hadn't been traded for Michael Granlin, whether Turris and Fiala with unrestricted signing by Nashville this offseason, Eric Holla would look right now as a second line. The unrestricted signings in prior years by David Poyle is sign number two he needs to go. The flip-flop on not re-signing, then re-signing Mikhail Granlin for way more than he should be paid by, I would say, 1.5 mil tops. And I, in the beginning, praised GM Poyle for moving on. And then when he brought him back after his no-shot attempt at landing Taylor Hall, well, I think it should have sealed his GM fate. By the way, as an aside, Nashville's 4-2 win this week had Mikel Granlin playing center in the top six. And I have to check, but probably most time on ice of any of the forwards while producing nothing. His half-point production per game now is not even surprising to me. While I saw it absolutely forced line combinations that, if you remember, looked pretty darn good in the first two games of the season versus Columbus. Both Nashville wins 
when Granlin wasn't playing at all. By the way, that game, Granlin, 1915, the most minutes for any Nashville forward, and generally he leads in time on ice for Nashville again this season, not Philip Forsberg. They win that game, and all of this I'm telling you, because they win that game with secondary scoring on a pair from Callie Yarncrock and one from Colton Sissons, plus Forsberg's individual effort as the team's legitimate game-breaker who actually doesn't play the most minutes. A top six that had four legit top six guys to play in it. A gutting of the strength down the middle in the offseason, trading Benino for Cunning, was going to be a loss in the short term. And it's a gamble on Cunning in the long term. Honestly, even if Coach Hines were to take every single one of my lineup card adjustments with this Nashville team, they would be hard-pressed to win. I don't think it's the coaching, although at times it isn't helping the situation. The GM-provided personnel has left the few elite Nashville players with a cast that can't compete in the very tough Discover Central. It's not a surprise. The surprise would be that they were in a playoff position. Kind of like getting to hear Casey Musgraves on Country Radio is. You can retool this team. It just has slowly each year regressed by the guy in charge of retooling it. Nashville's team metrics, 29th in goal scored at 2.29. That's taking a hit with Johansson out as well. 27th in goals allowed at 3.35. They're allowing more goals than they're scoring. The power play at 15% is ranked 24th. The PK is the second worst in the National Hockey League at a 68.3 success rate. Nashville's useless factoid, and you will love this. New York Islander GM Lou Lamorello, also longtime GM of the New Jersey Devil, made it to the 1300 win club as a GM. And you are probably wondering what that has to do with Nashville or anything. The two GMs with more wins on that list are Glenn Sather, former Edmonton and New York Ranger GM, And with the most, at the top of that list, is Nashville GM David Poyle. Don't think I don't know that I just gave the case for the GM with the most NHL wins to be a let go for the betterment of the future of the Nashville Predators. I stand behind it because I think there's substance to the argument that it is time for a change. Or, hell, promote Poyle to the president of everything but player personnel decisions, whatever you want to title it. Thumbs up. Last week, it was depth forward Rocco Grimaldi. This week, it's depth forward Kelly Yarncrook, whose two goals and a crossbar close to a hattie led Nashville to a needed win while playing 16 minutes, 42 seconds time on ice. Thumbs down. I'm just going to say this every week until it happens. Thumbs down to Coach Hines for giving Michael Granlin the most time on ice of Nashville forwards every game. Put him on the third line. And for our other weekly Nashville update, Nashville is 2-1 and one with Mikhail Granlin not in the lineup. They are 5-9 and nine with him in the lineup this year. One of those is above 500, the other is not. I think you know which one. To be continued. In additional news for Nashville, no changes for the injured reserve lists from last week. Left-hand defenseman Matthias Ekholm, undisclosed. Lucas Spiza, upper body, also a left-handed defenseman. Center Ryan Johansson, upper body, as well as center Brad Richardson, upper body. Both those hurt positionally so much for Nashville, center and defense, as 
we talked about in our analysis. Up next, four games for Nashville, Tuesday and Thursday at Detroit, Saturday, Sunday, back-to-back versus Columbus at home. If you are looking for a week of games, the team directly below and above Nashville in the standings, well, here it is. Well, one week won't determine the entire season. How about we say this one week could define it for Nashville? A week of wins would bring Nashville to respectability. That's unlikely. A split will leave them exactly where they are in the standings, and that's well out of the playoffs. And that's most likely the outcome. While anything less will bury the postseason this season for them altogether. No pressure, guys. By the way, I expect a split. Finally, Dallas. A 583-point percentage has them fourth. They had no games this week, so they remain overall 5-3-4. 12 games played, 14 points. 40 goals for, 34 goals against, a plus-six goal differential. Postpones game is why we finish with Dallas this week. Although, had Nashville dropped both their games, I was going to put Dallas ahead of them for having the same number of wins without any losses. I'm not even kidding about it. The welcome mat isn't exactly extended based on the caliber of competition that Dallas returns to play against this week. I do want to say, it wasn't a COVID pause. The lineup is as close to as healthy as it's been all year, minus those we knew were out prior to the season's start. And it didn't take Minnesota or Colorado long to find their game after longer forced COVID breaks. Dallas is going to be competitive. There is no analysis, but we will tell you the team metrics where they're at now that the NHL's played some more games. Dallas's 3.33 goals per game is 10th in goals scored league-wide. The power play at 33.3 success rate tied for second overall. The team is tied for 8th in goals allowed at 2.67 per game. The penalty kill ranks 18th at 78% success rate. Moving on just to additional news as we can't do the other segments based on no games being played. Top six forward Alexander Radulov is now listed on IR with a lower body injury. Originally, that was day-to-day, so he might be there a bit longer. Not sure if he'll be available this week. Up next for Dallas. Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday at Florida. Saturday at Tampa Bay. They've got a three-set with Florida. Then they will play one with Tampa Bay. So, welcome back, Dallas. And I mean that, like welcome back to being able to get to play games again. That is awesome. But in the other sense, look at that competition. Did the week off help or hinder Dallas? I'm not even going to be making predictions here. We expect Dallas to compete. I do. I expect them to compete. But that stiff competition of the schedule that they're going to have to return to play against. We finish off the podcast as always looking at Winnipeg, the lone team in this year's North Division four road games this week let's look at winnipeg's record and this week's game summaries winnipeg a 639 point percentage has them second this week three one and zero overall 11 six and one 18 games played 23 points 61 goals for 49 goals against a goal differential plus 12 
Monday, a 6-5 win at Edmonton. Edmonton takes an offensive zone penalty. Blake Wheeler sets up Mark Shifley for a power play goal with a cross-seam pass for a one-timer from the circle that beats Edmonton goalie Mike Smith's short side. Edmonton's Darnell Nurse and Winnipeg's Adam Lowry tussle. An 11-03 Edmonton stretch pass leads to a goal on a partial break short side on Winnipeg goalie Connor Hellbuck. At 12.50, Winnipeg off the cycle scores as Kyle Connor collects from a scramble in the circle. Two on one Winnipeg after one. 49 seconds into the second, Winnipeg's Mason Appleton scores five hold. 2.31, Nick Ehlers goes bar down from the high slot for another Winnipeg goal. This ends Edmonton goalie Mike Smith's night. Four goals against seven saves. Edmonton goalie Miko Koskinen enters with the score 4-1 Winnipeg. 9-12, Edmonton finishes off a given goal. Net side for a power play goal with Winnipeg goalie Hellebuck out of position. 14-15, Edmonton point shot goes short side high for a tip goal. Off a face-off win, a Winnipeg point shot tipped by Matthew Perot, and he scores at 14-15. 17-39, an Edmonton pass from below the goal line to the slot gets roof glove side. 5-4 Winnipeg through two. 2.55 into the third. Edmonton goal off the rush. Far side ties the game at five. At 6.22 of the third, Winnipeg gains zone entry. Winnipeg defenseman Josh Morrissey's point shot is tipped net front by Winnipeg captain Blake Wheeler for the game-winning goal for Winnipeg. 6-5 final. Edmonton outshot Winnipeg 45-24. Both teams one for two on the power play. Hellebuck five goals against, making 40 saves for the win. Wednesday was a 3-2 loss at Edmonton for Winnipeg. 3.45 of the first Edmonton given goal springs a breakaway for an Edmonton goal on Winnipeg goalie Connor Halbuck, blocker side. 21 seconds later, Edmonton gets another goal off of the transition blocker side. Under a minute to go on Winnipeg's third power play in a row, Mark Scheifele's shot goes off an Edmonton defender and past Edmonton goalie Mike Smith. In the second, Winnipeg defenseman Tucker Pullman takes a big hit from behind from Edmonton's Chris Russell. 16-45 Edmonton power play. Goal is Hellbuck's juicy rebound. Ends up on Edmonton's Leon Dreisaitl stick and from the circle he makes no mistake with the short side roofer for his second of the game. 3-1 Edmonton after two. That would be the game winning goal. In the third 4-4 Winnipeg's defenseman Neil Pionk walks in from the point to blast home a goal roofer blocker side. Pionk and point. That's really hard to say in the same sentence. A Nick Ehlers offensive zone penalty with 309 left dampens any further Winnipeg comeback. 3 2 Edmonton win Winnipeg. 35 30 shot advantage. Winnipeg was 1 for 5. Edmonton 1 for 6 on the power play in a penalty filled game with 11 in total. Hellebuck, 3 goals against, 27 saves in the loss. Friday, a 2 0 win. In Vancouver, 7.25 into the first, Mark Shifley skates down through Vancouver's defenders for a breakaway and puts a forehand backhand goal in to open the scoring. With 6.25 left, Winnipeg Nick Ehlers with speed drives with the puck to the net for a great chance. one nothing Winnipeg after one. In the second, Winnipeg goalie Laurent Bossois stops a Vancouver power play backdoor chance with 14 minutes left. Vancouver goalie Thatcher Demko holds the fort on a Winnipeg 3-on-2 chance with 9.42 left. Winnipeg's Paul Stastny is stopped on a redirect chance. Brassois is equal to the task, stopping a Vancouver breakaway with 2.46 left in a scoreless second frame. In the third, Winnipeg gets insurance goal 
An empty net goal by Mason Appleton with a minute 17 left. After the empty net goal, Winnipeg's Derek Forbert and Vancouver's Niles Hoglander start a full-out line scrum on a delayed penalty to Winnipeg. Winnipeg, 39-29 shot advantage, aided by a 15-9 advantage in the first period in shots. Both teams were 0-2 on the power play. Winnipeg goalie Laurent Brassois, who was born in Port Alberni, British Columbia, gets his first shutout of the season, making 29 saves. Sunday, a 4-3 overtime win for Winnipeg at Vancouver. In the first, Winnipeg's Derek Forpert and Vancouver's Zach McEwen inserted into the lineup for this exact reason to fight fight at 2.30 into the game. McEwen's five-minute major almost equals his six minutes and nine seconds in time on ice for the game. 3.38, Vancouver off a face-off win, shoot the puck wide of the net. It comes out the short side and is jammed past Winnipeg goalie Hellebuck, who guessed it was coming out the other way. Winnipeg, with a giveaway at their own blue line, has Hellebuck make a huge pad save with five minutes left. Another offensive zone face-off win by Vancouver leads to essentially target practice on Hellebuck. Eventually, a bouncing puck in the paint is by a no-look put in by Vancouver's Elias Pettersson through his own legs while he's facing away from the net to score at 15:40. Vancouver 2-0 through 1. Winnipeg escapes down only 2 because of Hellebuck as Winnipeg badly outshot 17-9 in the first. In the second, three minutes in, Winnipeg defenseman Josh Morrissey uses his stick to prevent a sure Vancouver wraparound goal from going in. 12.25 left, Winnipeg's Nick Ehlers drives to the net, but he can't convert. 14.37, Pierre-Luc Dubois, in his return from injury and back in the lineup, is set up by Blake Wheeler for his first goal as a Jet, cutting it to a 2-1 Vancouver lead after two. In the third at 5.43, Winnipeg Shifley gets it through Vancouver goalie Braden Holtby's five-hole, and it has just enough mustard to cross the goal line. With 12 minutes left, Winnipeg has a big penalty kill and gets a power play opportunity after. Winnipeg's defenseman Pionk puts away a one-timer on a pass from Dubois. Seven and a half left. Cop is denied net side, and with 6.05 to go, Vancouver hits a post on the power play. The teams swap power play opportunities. With 2.13 left, Winnipeg gets a delay of game for the puck going over the glass. 37.7 seconds left in regulation. Vancouver gets it up for Peterson for a one-timer from the top circle for a power play goal to tie the game with his second goal of the night and force overtime. 27 seconds into overtime, Winnipeg's Dubois gets his second of the game, driving the net, protecting the puck against a van forward, and goes high short side for the overtime game-winning goal. 34-31 shots for Vancouver as it evened out as the game went on. Winnipeg 1-3, for three, Vancouver 1-4 for four in the power play. Hellebuck 3 goals against, 31 saves for the OT win. This week's analysis for Winnipeg and Coach Paul Maurice will like this. From a purely results-based standpoint, a 3-1-0 four-game road trip is excellent. Paul Maurice likes to look at the results, not how the team necessarily arrived at them. 
I have been resigned. Winnipeg would get a split in the two two-game sets. That held true in Edmonton in a poorly defensively played game to start the week. The teams more than covered the over with a combined 11 goals. Winnipeg color commentator Kevin Sawyer could have come out of retirement and ended one in a third, I think, for either team. Seriously, though, Connor Helbeck made 40 saves. He did allow five goals, but he didn't give up a costly goal and made some big saves in that win. The one-goal game loss was so penalty-filled it had no flow, and one of Edmonton's big-time players made good on his opportunities and was the difference maker. Of course, last year's Hart Trophy winner. Winnipeg would be served better staying out of the box when playing Edmonton's power play, which currently sits with a 26.4 success rate. Now, Laura Brassois was the story in Winnipeg's 2-0 win in Vancouver Friday, and Hellebuck, to me, was the star on Sunday, because, to be honest, halfway through the second, only he and the Vancouver team showed up to play. And I was thinking, wow, this Winnipeg team is going to get one of those just before the second period end goals and if they play a good period of hockey have a chance to steal the game on sunday they would use ot for a dramatic effect but they actually did it vancouver didn't chase hellebuck when they dominated to put the game out of reach and their struggles this season meant for probably tighter six when winnipeg made it a close one goal game and then tied it and then took the lead so back to the results That's what a playoff-bound team road trip should actually look like. The goaltending was the key in every game, and something that everybody keeps saying isn't happening in the North Division. On defense, Neil Pionk was stellar. He played his best games as a Winnipeg Jet on this road trip. He now has 15 points in 18 games played. He looked to me for the first time like a top-four defenseman at both ends of the rink. I've been critical of him playing top-four early on, but he gets full marks, and I take that back. If he continues to play that way, he definitely is a top-four defenseman. Anyone wanting to complain about the late delay of game penalty on Josh Morrissey should remember it was his defensive stick that prevented that Vancouver wraparound goal that could have changed the game way earlier in the second when the Jets weren't playing. That would have made it 3-0 Vancouver, and it wouldn't have been a one-goal game going into the third with Vancouver having those tighter six. But the complainers probably don't remember that play. Also, Winnipeg does this late in games, but they didn't give up the game-winning goal on that Morrissey penalty. They just gave up the tying goal. Then they put out three forwards and walked out of Vancouver with four out of the four points in under 30 seconds of overtime play. Winnipeg being ahead allows for the late blunders they always seem to have not to cost points. And I spent a lot of time last week saying, just get up enough to still win. The deserved attention for Dubois' return in three-point night was all in the back half of that Vancouver game Sunday. Dubois on the wing looked good. Caught back with Lowry struggled, but overall Appleton and Lowry helped him through it on Sunday. Connor Statsy and Ehlers are going to do some damage against the right matchup. The only guy on the fourth line that should always play is Trevor Lewis. I think Jansen Harkins and Christian Veselainen with him is as good as PK specialist Nate Thompson and second power play unit guy Matty Perot is. Quite honestly, 
I hate Perot on the second power play unit. With Ehlers, Pionk, and Dubois available, I'd like to see Mason Appleson and actually Trevor Lewis net front instead. But I never see what I like. By points percentage, Winnipeg is second in the North Division with Montreal right nearby. That's what a 3-1 week can do. The teams will meet for the first time this season, this week. Winnipeg's team metrics at 3.39 goals scored per game. Winnipeg is seventh in the league, improved two spots from a week ago. 2.67 goals allowed has them tied for eighth in goals allowed. And that's in the league. That's in the division, the North division that doesn't have good goaltending, remember. We keep hearing that. That also improved two spots from last week. The power play is 13th overall again this week at 22.8% success rate, while the penalty kill moved up two ranks to be in a tide for 12th league-wide. And on a quick side note, when we talk about these league-wide ranks, remember, the league will have 16 teams make the playoffs. When all the team stats are above that 16 spot, that usually means your team's going to be in the playoffs. Winnipeg's useless factoid. Coach Paul Maurice indicated to the media that it was Nate Thompson's additional special teams play, citing his ability to play on the penalty kill as to why Thompson would get back in the lineup having returned from injury. Thus, Jansen Harkins and or Christian Vestalainen would be healthy scratches. In his return, Thompson didn't have any penalty kill time. Maurice is always good on explaining his reasoning to the media. The same media should have asked why Jensen Harkins isn't given the opportunity to kill penalties. His skill set probably fits the role. In fact, I predict Harkins scores a shorthanded goal this season if he gets some penalty kill time. Thumbs up. There were a lot of choices here from Neil Pionk to Mark Scheifele's current point streak. However, as rare as backup Laurent Brassois gets to play behind Vesna winner Connor Halbuck, that he made the most of his opportunity to put together a shutout and help the team gain valuable points is the most deserved player to me this week for the thumbs up. Brassois is now 3-1-0, has a 2.24 goals against average and a .935 save percentage with the team's only shutout. Both his two career shutouts have been against Vancouver in Vancouver. They play in Vancouver more this year than any other year with this division set up. And a week from now, Winnipeg will have back-to-back at home versus Vancouver. That will probably be when we see Brassois in net for Winnipeg next in one of those two at the beginning of March. Thumbs down to the whole team minus Connor Halbuck for not showing up to play on time on Sunday. They got away with it with the overtime win, but Halibut mostly kept them in the game they otherwise didn't deserve to win, playing only the back half of the game. In additional news, after returning from injury, defenseman Tucker Pullman left Sunday's game with an undisclosed injury and is listed day-to-day. Winnipeg could use him for their upcoming games. He, whether you realize it or not, is a stabilizing defenseman to this Winnipeg D group. 
Personally, I want to see Ville Hanola in the lineup, who's in the AHL right now, for Nathan Beaulieu against Montreal and against the other overhyped Canadian team currently leading the North Division. Up next, Winnipeg has a few days off before they play two games against Montreal at home Thursday and Saturday. I honestly believe Montreal goalie Carey Price has that he doesn't have to play in Winnipeg in his contract because I actually can't remember it happening. Sure it has, but it's pretty rare. Given Jake Allen's familiarity with Winnipeg playing on traditional divisional rival St. Louis, I wouldn't be surprised to see Allen play both games. I really can't predict much, but here's one prediction. I've only watched a handful of Montreal games this year. Every one of those games, Montreal scores, and the goal scorer has been Josh Anderson. I expect Josh Anderson to score the first goal when these teams play. I also would take a split. Winnipeg split the first two games this year with everyone not named Ottawa that they have played at least two against so far. Winnipeg's divisional rivals, basically a summary of the North Division in under two minutes. Heading into Monday, the overhyped other Canadian team remains atop the North, and you would have to not be living in North America, I think, to not know that. They improved their point percentage to 789, and that's a 100-plus point better than Winnipeg in second and Montreal at 618 in third. The other Canadian team is without Cup D-man they got from L.A., and their backup they got from L.A. with a pair of games versus Calgary and a game at Edmonton this week. The first of three that other team will play in Edmonton. Montreal plays Ottawa prior to their set of two with Winnipeg. The two games Montreal versus Winnipeg play against each other really affects the standings if one of the teams wins both as to who will be sitting second in our next podcast. Edmonton sits fourth in point percentage at 600, largely aided by the goaltending of Mike Smith, who, after coming off from injury other than that game he was pulled against Winnipeg, has helped them start to climb in the north standings. Well, it has come largely at the expense of Calgary, who have fallen below 500, 472 point percentage, to be in sixth. Vancouver is still well below 500, 409 point percentage to be exact. And Ottawa remains last with a 275 point percentage. Final podcast thoughts. A few teams have reached the 20 game mark by this podcast. In the North, Vancouver had prior to meeting Winnipeg for both their games. Ottawa and Edmonton had reached it by Sunday night. Detroit in the Discover Central had by week's end as well. Chicago's postponed game with Carolina Saturday meant they won't play game 20 until Tuesday this week. I think now it will be three power ranking podcasts for the division teams we cover. That's how it's going to unfold. The North Division will all arrive at the 20 games played mark first. And we'll see, but Dallas and the Discover Central has a lot of games to catch up. So I would anticipate the West Power Ranking Podcast to be completed between those two. Remember, I'm using the hard 20 game played stats to compare the teams at the mark when we do that next Power Ranking Podcast. It means there are teams that will have played more by the time the last team in their respective division has. But a week or two away from those special edition podcasts, in addition to the weekly show you are listening to now. 
So keep a lookout for those. Thanks again for listening to Central Division Hockey, the podcast this week. Once again, I'm Tim Bigelow. Thanks to Winnipeg House Electronic Group, Map for the show intro, Break Return, and Extra Music with their song Acid Trash. And you can download that and listen to their music on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you stream your favorite music from. This podcast drops Tuesday, as that's when it has so far this season. The editing is going to be Tuesday, so hopefully it's not later than Tuesday when it drops. But remember, we don't cover the Monday games till next week, and knock on wood, all the eight teams we cover will play this upcoming week. Welcome back again, Dallas. Again. Thank you.